Today, we're talking about offerings. That's right, giving. And people have said to me in the past, well, I don't take or I don't give offerings anymore because I'm in the New Testament. Well, we're going to talk about that today in Leviticus chapter 22. It's going to be very interesting. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Rod Hemmer. And I'm Janice. And this is Bible Discovery TV. Corey is here with Ryan. Corey, what's going on? So I'm going to be focusing on Leviticus chapter 24, and specifically within that chapter, the bread of the presence that was to be specially baked and placed before God's presence in the tabernacle. Ryan? Today I'm taking an in-depth look at the feasts of Israel, which were given to them by God himself. The feast of Israel, actually, that's amazing. Janice? Today, living differently. All right, so get your Bible out. This is the most important book of all. It's, it's, it's the best book you'll ever read. And get your Bible guide out as we take you through the Bible. If you don't have one, we'll get you one. And let's begin to study and look at Leviticus 22 as the Lord is speaking to us. Leviticus 22, verses 10 through 16. No outsider shall eat the holy offering. One who dwells with the priest or a hired servant shall not eat the holy thing. But if the priest buys a person with his money, he may eat it, and one who is born in his house may eat his food. If the priest's daughter is married to an outsider, she may not eat of the holy offerings. But if the priest's daughter is a widow or divorced and has no child and has returned to her father's house as in her youth, she may eat her father's food, but no outsider shall eat it. And if a man eats the holy offering unintentionally, then he shall restore a holy offering to the priest and add one-fifth to it. They shall not profane the holy offerings of the children of Israel, which they offer to the Lord, or allow them to bear the guilt of trespass when they eat their holy offerings. For I, the Lord, sanctify them. Leviticus chapter 22, verses 10 through 16. As we continue reading through the Bible, Leviticus chapter 22, 23, and 24, this is our reading assignment for today in the Bible guide. And let me tell you something, it is a good chapter, a good book. Leviticus is about the Levites, I wanna tell you. And as we focus on this, the word holy, it means apartness, it means holiness, it means sacredness. In fact, it means separateness. It refers to the distinct nature of God. Several times in the law, God admonishes Israel to be holy because he says, I am holy. Likewise, offerings given to the Lord are called holy offerings. Now, this means that Israel was to treat them differently. Offerings to God were not taxes. They were not normal economic purchases. They were offerings to a holy God. Now, how Israel dealt with them was important. Even today, how we give to God is very important. We need to treat God with the respect that is due him and any gifts to him 
as a sort of different kind of thing. You see, when we use our resources of time, our resources of livelihood, our resources of lifestyle to build the kingdom of God, we are giving God a type of a modern offering. Like the Israelites of old, let us be holy like our God and like the Christians of the first century church. Let us live our lives entirely with nothing held back as a holy sacrifice to the Lord. And you can read about that holy sacrifice in Romans chapter 12 as well. Now, today, as we focus on this, we're going to be looking at Leviticus. And actually, 22 is a very interesting chapter. And as we focus on this, I want to tell you that uh, we need to pay attention because the Lord is definitely doing something very unique here as he speaks. Now, I don't have time to go through everything we're doing, but I have time to focus on one thing. And Lord, today, as we pray the holy offerings, as we focus on this one thing, and there are many things here that you have given us by the power of your Holy Spirit, but Lord, we only have about six minutes, so help us to deal with this properly. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' wonderful name. And we said together, amen and amen. So you know what's interesting about this as we focus on the 22nd chapter and we look at verse 10, it says, No outsider shall eat the holy offering. One who dwells with the priest or hired a servant shall not eat the holy thing. But if the priest buys a person with his money, he may eat it. And one who is born in his house may eat his food. Isn't that interesting? Now, what does this mean? As we consider this today, holy offerings were only to be eaten by the priest and those who were of his household. You see, giving to God's ministry is unique. It's different and it's unique. We must pay attention to God's instructions in giving to the household of the Lord. Did you understand what that means? It's different than giving to any other organization. When we give to the household of God or we give to the places where we receive the word, where we hear the Bible, where we can learn and participate in the fellowship and all of that, then we are giving to God. Now, we're not to be, you know, super uh, people who are super misers and all that and dictate where it goes and all of that because we give to the Lord and the Lord is much higher than we are. The Lord thinks much better than we do. So keep that in your heart and keep that in your mind. So let's go on to chapter 22, verse 12. If the priest's daughter is married to an outsider, she may not eat of the holy offerings. But if the priest's daughter is a widow or divorced and has no child and has returned to her father's house, as in her youth, she may eat her father's food, but no outsider shall eat it. Now, Did you hear what God said? No outsider could eat any of the holy offerings. Beloved, we must remember that God sees all things. The Lord sees everything. And his eyes are not like our eyes. And his perception is not like our perception. He sees all things, beloved. And as we think this through and as we understand it, we realize, wait a minute. I got to pay attention because when I'm giving, 
God sees everything, where it came from, where it's going, how it's working. So I have to give to God with an open and a right heart. And that's something that we need to pay attention to. Now, let's go to the next passage because it's very interesting, 22, 14 to 16. And if a man eats the holy offerings unintentionally, then he shall restore a holy offering to the priest and add one-fifth to it. They shall not profane the holy offerings of the children of Israel, which they offer to the Lord, or allow them to bear the guilt of trespass when they eat their holy offerings. For I, the Lord, sanctify them. Did you hear that? That's really interesting. You see, the Lord God sanctified the holy offerings. Sacred offerings and tithes are holy, beloved. And we should give them to God only. Now, listen to me carefully. When we began the church in the year 2000, I prayed very much about this. And in our case, I'm not saying this is the case of every church, but in our case, I said, Lord, help us to restore worship to giving. And God took me to a place in the word of God where he put boxes in the temple. And people gave to the boxes the offerings. And I thought that through. And so we put boxes at the back of the doors where we rented first. And we said, we're not going to take time for an offering, but we believe in giving. And if God speaks to your heart during worship or the service, then give in the offering. And that's what we did. And the entire church has grown from that and existed with that. And even today in the middle of Orangeville, if you go see good friends fellowship or visit there, then going out, you'll see the boxes and you'll see people putting them in the boxes. Beloved, we need to remember that offerings are not a commercial work. They're not. When you give to God, you've given the money to the Lord. God sees it in heaven. It's registered in heaven. God is the one that we give to. And that's how we support the work of God every step of the way. So I want to pray today. And Father, I pray that we understand that your offerings are holy. And when we give, we need to, to pay attention to why we give. We give because you gave to us first. And we don't give with strings attached and ideas and all of that. We give to you, Lord. And we thank you for what you're doing. In the name of Jesus Christ, and we ask this, and we all said together, amen. Now, keep that in mind when you go to your church or whatever ministry you give to on television or internet or wherever. You give to the Lord, beloved. That is very, very important. And as God begins to show us that, things begin to grow, and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ does one thing. It moves forward. Jesus Christ spoke to us and told us not to be afraid, not to be troubled by these times. This is the beginning of the end. This is the beginning of God's final reconciliation with the world. God is going to make things change in our lives. And this is very important. He has selected you and myself to live in this time. And I find that absolutely amazing. 
So as we continue on in our study of Leviticus, I wanted to take a close-up look at Leviticus chapter 23. And you know, this passage really is amazing because God gives his people feasts and festivals to commemorate his victory over their enemies. But did you know that it's through these feasts that God reveals his outline for the future? Check it out. It is in the 23rd chapter of Leviticus that God first unveils his calendar for the appointed feasts and festivals of Israel. And it is through these holy convocations that God discloses his outline for the future. Even though not obvious at the time, the feasts were nevertheless precisely spaced and dated because they represented God's timetable of events by which he is moving through history. Therefore, it is not insignificant that Leviticus 23 presents seven feasts in total four in the spring and three in the fall. The first of these feasts, Passover, commemorates the time God spared the children of Israel during their final hours in Egypt when the angel of death passed over those houses which had lamb's blood painted around their doors. As the Apostle Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 5-7, Passover typifies or prefigures the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our ultimate Passover lamb, who was, of course, also crucified on a Passover. The second spring feast, Unleavened Bread, occurs the day following Passover, and it too commemorates Israel's sojourn in Egypt, when God commanded his people to remove all leaven from their houses. Just as yeast causes bread to rise, so sin causes our hearts to swell with pride. In conjunction with Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread looks to the cross of Christ, where sin was put away. The third feast, the Feast of First Fruits, is observed every year before the spring harvest, on the day after the Sabbath. At this festival, the Israelites are required to offer the Lord the first and best of their harvests. Again, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 plainly tells us what this feast typifies, namely the resurrection of Jesus Christ when he became the first fruits of many resurrected bodies. Just as Jesus died on Passover as the ultimate Passover lamb, he also rose three days later on the Feast of Firstfruits. The fourth and final spring festival is called the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost, and was celebrated 50 days after the Feast of Firstfruits. It was during this festival that the Israelites offered up to God burnt offerings, grain offerings, and drink offerings. Most notably of these are the two loaves of bread made without yeast. This festival quite clearly typifies the coming of the Holy Spirit, which occurred on this very feast day in order to bring Jews and Gentiles, apparently represented by the two loaves of bread in Leviticus 23, into one new man. Thus, these four spring feasts are all images of the major events of Jesus Christ's first coming. While the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread speak to us of Calvary, which Christ alludes to in the Last Supper when he says, This is my blood and this is my body, the Feast of Firstfruits and Pentecost point to his resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit, respectively. It is no wonder, then, why Warren Worsby calls Leviticus 23 the calendar that tells the future. So today we looked at the first four festivals which all occur in the spring and all typify the major events of the earthly ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. But interestingly, after these four festivals, there's a long break where no festivals occur. 
But after the long summer break comes three more festivals. And the question is, if the first four festivals represented events of our Lord's first advent, then what does the summer break represent? And what do the three remaining fall feasts typify? More on this tomorrow. And we're going to be back tomorrow to listen to that because that is fascinating. We need to understand that the laws and the restrictions and all of that in the Old Testament speak about what Jesus did and is going to do mm -hmm. in the New Testament. It's very, Absolutely. very interesting. That is excellent. Corey? Okay. Leviticus chapter 24, the bread of the presence. So here in Leviticus, we have the beginning of the tradition of the bread of the presence. So we're going to see uh, the bread of the presence show up in a few more places, not only in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament as well. We're going to see King David breaking the rules and, and the priests breaking the rules surrounding the bread of the presence for him. We're going to see typical King Solomon being like, bread of the presence, that's not enough. Let's have 10 breads of the presence. Like it's, it's really interesting. And we're also going to see Jesus Christ pointing back to this instance with David and the bread of the presence to challenge religious thinking of his day. So first, let's focus in on the bread of the presence and what it was. A key element of Israelite worship was the bread of the presence. It was considered one of the three holiest regular actions in Israelite worship. These three holy actions all took place in the sanctuary of the tabernacle and temple, the area closest to the Holy of Holies, and were carried out by the high priest exclusively. These were the lighting of the golden lampstand, the burning of incense on the golden altar, and the replacement of the bread of the presence on the golden table. All these actions represented parts of the covenant that God had with Israel. The bread of the presence symbolized God's provision toward Israel. It was also connected with the Sabbath as a perpetual ordinance. On the Sabbath, the priests switched out the bread of the presence. The week-old bread was then consumed by the priests in the sanctuary, as it had been made holy by being in the presence of God. It's also connected to the manna, or bread from heaven, that God provided for Israel during their time in the wilderness after the Exodus. In Leviticus chapter 24, we learn that each loaf of bread was to be made with two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour. This is the same amount of manna that the Israelites were to collect per person in preparation for their Sabbath in the wilderness. The measurement works out to be around 7 pounds, or 3.2 kilograms, per loaf. The bread of the presence consisted of 12 loaves arranged in two piles of six on top of the golden table. The loaves are also called the bread of the piles, the continual or regular bread, and holy bread. Their number seems to represent the 12 tribes of Israel, whose provision is always before the face of God. So entrenched was the symbolism of the bread with the provision of God that it later became a saying in Jewish tradition that if one wanted material blessing, they should point their feet north when they prayed. The table of bread was oriented on the north side of the sanctuary. In First Chronicles, we learn that the Kohathite family of Levitical priests were tasked with the special service of baking the bread of the presence. Its shape, recipe, and arrangement became quite the center of later tradition. While most modern representations of the table of showbread are rather straightforward, a table with a golden rim around its top, modern Judaism has kept the tradition that the loaves were separated by golden reeds or rods adding support to the unleavened bread. These are envisioned and depicted as movable shelves. 
To the table built during Moses' lifetime, the Bible tells that King Solomon added 10 more to his Jerusalem temple. Ezra may also have had to remake a golden table after the Babylonian exile, and the apocryphal book of 1st Maccabees tells us that Simon Maccabee also had to make a new table after it was taken by an enemy king. Finally, the history of the table of showbread ends with its depiction on the Ark of Titus being carried off to Rome as booty after the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. So the bread of the presence is really, really interesting. And I want to take some time here because we're in the Mosaic Law at this point to talk about the challenge that the incidents with King David eating the bread of the presence, you know, when the priest decided to share the old bread of the presence with David and his and his the people who were with him, his fighting men at that time in order to save them, in order to sustain their life so they could keep on going. Because technically that was breaking the Mosaic law. This bread was only to be consumed by the priests, uh, by no one else, but, but they broke the rule and that was okay. And later on in the Gospels, Christ points back to this to challenge the Pharisees thinking about the Sabbath. Because what we learn is that the law was um, uh, is a moral guideline. It, it, it always has been a moral guideline. And there is wiggle room, which makes us very uncomfortable. But what I mean by wiggle room is that we must, we we must interpret the law through God's ethics, not through our own ethics. So we can interpret the law and apply it in such a way that denies loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, and strength, and loving our neighbor as ourself. So if the priests followed the law and let King David die, rather than share their bread with them, they would be denying the ethic of loving God and loving their neighbor as themselves. So in them sharing that and technically breaking this law or stretching this law, because David and his men were consecrated, uh, you know, they were, they were opening up this law. They were following God's ethics and God's morality. So there's a little bit of wiggle room in the applications of the law because we're not applying the law or they shouldn't have been applying the law based on strict human standards, but rather on God's original standards and intents and purposes. So there's this very uncomfortable kind of moral and ethical tension that we feel when we approach, you know, these Old Testament laws, but that's a good thing. God intended that to be so. And we learn that when we, you know, look at Christ's teachings. Yeah, it's important. And that's why Rahab um, lied to the people right. who were hiding. She was hiding the spies. Right. Because it would have killed it's the people. It's very uncomfortable, though. Yeah. We don't like having that tension, but it's there. <laughs> but you've got to interpret that through mm -hmm. God's perspective, mm -hmm. not man's perspective. Mm -hmm. Very important. Janice? Living differently was what I called my segment today. This chapter 22 was focused on the conduct of God's priests. The priests of God were to live in a different way from others. And we too, as followers of Christ, need to be living differently than those who are not followers of Christ. If we're not, then we need to take a look at our relationship with following the Lord Jesus Christ if we say we're a Christian. Now, as we read this chapter, some of the wording might seem rough. God says in, in Leviticus 22, verse 3, he said, if they don't follow these, um, they're going to be cut off from my presence. Now, this didn't mean that they were going to be executed 
or banished from the community. But what it meant was that they would be permanently denied the privilege of ministering as a priest. And that would have been very rough if you felt that that was what your family line as a Levitical priest was to be cut off from that. So this was very serious business. Now, in Leviticus 22, all of the elements have been expressed before, but not in one place, as in this chapter. Um, now, God's person, his name, his present action in sanctifying his people, and his present action in rescuing them from slavery in Egypt, all were given as the basis of Israel's worship. And it says in Leviticus the last three verses, 31 to 33, therefore you shall keep my commandments and perform them. He's talking to his priests. I am the Lord. You shall not profane my holy name, but I will be hallowed among the children of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. So to follow Christ as Christ followers, if we call ourselves a Christian, then that means we must live differently. Our culture will not look like the way Jesus Christ calls us to live. The way we may have been raised in our families may not line up with the way that Christ wants us to live. And how do we do that? Can we do it just by reading the Bible? No, because that that's reading it, but we have to start applying it. And some of it can be very difficult to apply to our lives. In fact, impossible, humanly impossible. The only way that we can do that is through the help of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we invite him to forgive us of our sins, when we repent of that and say, Lord Jesus, I believe that you came, that you died on the cross and that you rose again and that you've given me the gift of eternal life. Help me to follow you. Help me. I give you my life to follow you. Help me to do that. Then Jesus makes a deposit of his Holy Spirit within us. And it's that Holy Spirit that, that is our teacher that can guide us and help us through the decisions that we have to make, through the things that we do in this life. Is it easy? No, I'm not going to lie to you. It's not easy. And sometimes it feels pretty rough. And a lot of people will say, I can't handle it. We can't. We need the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're feeling in that place today, cry out to the Lord. He hears you. He knows you. He knows you better than you know yourself. Recommit your life to him. Recommit to follow him. Recommit to read his word and to understand it with God's Holy Spirit helping you. We're here to help you. We don't get it right all the time. We're just a normal, regular family, normal, regular people that also fail too. But together we can encourage one another in the word of God, follow his direction, and, and he will, he will help us in through his word, and through his dedication to keep us well and healthy in our spirit and in our bodies. Thank you for joining us today. And as we pray at the end of the program, there's a lot we've learned, but there's so much more to learn from the law. But we understand this, that our attitudes may need adjustment. 
And so we pray today, Lord, help me to develop a good and cheerful attitude of giving tithes and offerings to you. Giving to you, Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we all said together, amen.